Hi, everybody. Welcome to a bonus episode of Divided Films. Uh, we are coming to you in between seasons because, you know, we just couldn't go too long without recording another episode. We got the hankering. Um, so we decided that we would put out an episode just about a month before our regular season starts. Um, so let's get to dust off the microphones with you, Keith, and do a little midsummer episode here. Indeed it is. How has your summer been, JJ? Yeah, it's been nice. It's been a lot busier than last year, of course. Uh, you know, a lot of things get pushed back from last year to this year are all kind of happening at once. But uh, no, it's good. It's uh, you know been been very adventurous so far. How about you? It's been good. It's been good watching a lot of movies. Uh, I live by the shore, so I'm you know going going to the beach, going uh, you know trying to work on my tan, trying to emphasis on trying to living the life, man. Uh, I don't know if red counts as a tan, but if it does, lovely tan. I, I, I put on like SPF 70 to not you, get red. <laughs> you might want to upgrade. I don't tan well either, but I try not to get red this time around. I, I don't tan well either, so I don't even bother anymore. Um, hopefully we bring back fair as the appeal and not tan. <laughs> I want to go back to Victorian age levels of beauty. Okay. So uh, today we're going to talk about, for our bonus episode, uh, we're going back to our childhood, our childhood favorites and our least favorites, actually, because uh, we always try to do both sides of the coin. So, you know, we've reached back into our childhood and thought about the movies that we enjoyed the most when we were kids and the movies we enjoyed the least. And we're going to see, you know, try to put ourselves back in our shoes, back in our, like, you know, six seven year old shoes and try to remember why we liked or disliked these movies and now put our more adult critical uh point of view on it so uh to get into that we're going to start with my pick for my least favorite childhood movie and that is the 1994 animated film hans christian anderson's thumbelina rated g uh written and directed by tom bluth so a little background on how this movie plays into my childhood and growing up with my sister Alyssa, who's two years older than me you know we had our collection of vhs's which most other kids in the 90s had and it was mostly disney movies but uh there was this movie thumbelina that would sometimes work its way into our rotation of you know movie of the day that we'd watch and whenever that was the movie of the day i'd be very disappointed uh, as as a young kid, I found this movie boring. I thought the characters were annoying. I thought that the songs weren't good. As a little kid, I found that there was nothing really appealing to me, but my sister really loved it. And I, looking back now as an adult, I feel like this is a movie that really could only appeal to like little girls, for example. Um, but now as an adult rewatching it, my opinions are the same i still think this story is boring i still think the characters are annoying and i still think the songs are terrible but keith uh if you're new to this movie what was your like fresh eye take on thumbelina i really is this just me helping you through your childhood trauma (laughs) this is me just coaxing you through your childhood trauma we're gonna play therapist for each other in this episode i'll say this with like all don bluth movies i kind of i know i watched them growing up i know i've watched them uh but with thumberlina especially i do I, it, it's not good like i i probably have watched this years ago but it, it's it's not good as opposed to it being it's more forgettable this movie is yeah. very like even the part where i said like oh that's their that's the main song that's the song i'm going to remember Turned out that, and I and they replayed it again in the credits, and I said to myself, like, that might stick in your head tomorrow. No, I, I, I couldn't even remember what the song was. I think I just, I, I feel like I had a fever dream of Gilbert Gottfried show up, Carol Channing yep. showed up. Well, that's the problem. There's no real even story to this movie, because, like, what is, even is the plot? Like, so this character Thumbelina, who we're introduced to in the beginning, this, like, miniature little girl... She meets, like, the fairy prince in the beginning, falls in love, but then shortly thereafter is kidnapped 
by the animated Toad version of Charo. And from there on, the whole movie, she is just meeting a series of characters of woodland creatures who all want to get with her. Like, the the Toad Charo wants her to marry her Toad son, like, ew. And then she meets the Gilbert Gottfried Beetle, who is running a burlesque show for insects. (laughs) And then she meets... Um, a rich blind mole who wants to get with her, and then voiced by John Hurt. Yeah, like what? Where did they get? How did they get these voice actors? And then Carol Channing plays the Mrs. Fieldmouse neighbor who sings to Thumbelina, possibly the worst song ever written in human history, "Marry the Mole." So I was subjected to that multiple times as a kid. The worst song of all time. <laughs> There's something I I have to make an observation. Uh, I know we didn't watch these movies at the same time. And there are seven something billion people on this planet. And whenever you do something unique, you have to say to yourself, like, oh, uh, I wonder if anyone out there is doing the same thing as me. And chances are maybe you're not alone in that. I knew with these two movies that you and I picked, I knew that I was the only person in the world watching Thumbelina (laughs) at this time. Oh, for sure. Like, I'm like, who... I can't see any anyone watching this or even remembering to watch this. I, I don't know. It's Don Bluth movies are very very niche. At least they can in terms be. of our childhood movies. Like they they fill this whole niche corner of animation. But I'll say this about Don Bluth cuz even with this movie in particular, Thumbelina, I also find the animation kind of off-putting. I thought it was like too bright and cutesy. The characters have like almost too much detail in their faces. And maybe that's a point of contention because Don Bluth is revered as an animator, at least for his uh, for his time. But I think what made his '80s catalog at least like good, they're like his '80s movies are revered. So like an American Tale, Secret of Nim, Land Before Time, and All Dogs Go to Heaven. I'm just trying to show off my uh, animation. All very all good movies. All like oh. fun movies all great movies but i think what made those movies successful is that they're mature movies they're imaginative movies they're inventive movies they actually could be dark at times and they're just doing the kinds of stories that disney wouldn't be doing uh it's kind of like alternative family entertainment and then you get to like the 90s and a movie like thumbelina is like almost a disney movie ripoff in so many respects it's like the fairy tale uh the fairy tale framework you're even getting voice actors from Disney movies. So Jodie Benson, the voice of The Little Mermaid, is the voice of Thumbelina. Gilbert Gottfried, who has an even bigger singing part in this, um, they bring him into this. And even the one song I think you're alluding to as like the song, the romantic song, Let Me Be Your Wings, even that song kind of has a whole new world vibe going on, even visually. Uh, when the, the prince was singing to her, I'm like, this is... This is like a rough draft version of a Disney movie. Yeah, right? This should have undergone, like, I don't know how powerful Tom Bluth's ego was at the time, but it's just like, this is going out, and no one said, Don, we need to really work on this. Yeah, he wrote it. Um, you know, he, It was like his, his wheelhouse. And then I don't think the as an animator, he would really bounce back critically until Anastasia several years later, and that was maybe his last hurrah. That was probably his more, his most mainstream and probably the biggest hit i would say right definitely most well known of his works was his last uh, critical success and again that one also is very disney like in many aspects it's like the musical the lost princess most people think it's disney well technically it is now because that was like technically a 20th century fox animation movie a very short-lived uh like division in, in 20th century fox and Disney has eaten that up. So now technically Anastasia is a Disney princess. Technically, but like at least for most of our lives, it's people have thought it's it was a Disney movie. Right. And I don't want this is like well Frankenstein's monster was the is the monster. Like okay, we understand like Disney Fox is now yeah. Disney blah blah blah. But it's uh <laughs> Yeah, no, it's I this, this movie's boring. Movie. This movie is like the equivalent of the Poochie episode of Simpsons where 
in the cartoon they're going to the fireworks factory and they never get to the fireworks factory <laughs> yeah it's just it's, it is like a very boring because like they're like i said it's just there's not one particular plot she's just kind of wandering around this character and meeting very like gross woodland creatures who are horny but then um like looking back to it is the kind of movie like the biggest flaw of this movie i think is that it's not for the whole family like a good animated or good family film should be for everyone's entertainment and this one is really specifically geared towards little kids based on uh the way it's animated based on like the way the voice actors um performances are in fact um a frequent guest on our show heather tedesco is the only person i know who still defends this movie even my older sister who enjoyed it as a kid she when i was texting her about we're watching this movie she said my sister um yeah oh that movie i don't think aged very well <laughs> so even she had fell off but then uh heather desco was still defending this movie and she has um like uh, a little bit of a defense clip that she sent into us uh so we'll take a listen to that i've truly never understood jj's distaste for this movie I have always loved it. I rewatched it and I still love it. The artwork is beautiful. There's fun, quirky characters. It's got a better love story than most princess movies where the princess is sleeping for 90% of the film. At least this love story is believable and the two of them are trying to get back to each other. There's messages about friendship and perseverance and different kinds of love. The score by Barry Manilow is absolutely amazing. The music is catchy. The love songs are enchanting. And then on top of all of that, I think if you're comparing it to Disney films, sure, it's not as great as those. But just because you go to Niagara Falls once doesn't mean you can't enjoy a beautiful waterfall when you're hiking in the woods. So I think Thumbelina is a great movie. I think it stands up and you should go watch it because it's amazing. So that's that's the problem I think with any bad animated family movie is when you don't consider the entertainment of the whole audience because that's sometimes why parents don't want to go see a movie an animated movie in the theaters because they are afraid it'll be something like Thumbelina that they'll be bored and only like specifically little kids will be interested in. I was asking myself like is this bad? And I'm like yes there are I, story there's a lot of bad aspects to it but it, it is i don't have a problem with the animation i always respect uh anime even in our least favorite childhood movies there's a lot to there's a lot of craftsmanship going sure. in it uh but it, it it's like if i met someone at a party and it's nice to meet you and it's like oh we met before i'm like oh you were so forgettable that like there's nothing that I kind of was like thinking of like how would I do Thumbelina and it's like oh I kind of maybe would do like a princess and the frog type situation I would take the Thumbelina story and put it in a different just something that makes it stand out like he he really kind of took the fairy tale which is only like 10 pages (laughs) in real life and kind of just like and you only get like the first you know, you kind of only see it in the beginning. It's like, first of all, it starts with once a time, once upon a time in Paris. It doesn't even take place in Paris. And then the whole thing of the old woman who couldn't have a kid and the witch gives her a flower that Thumbelina is born out of. A fully good clothed, witch. A good witch. But Not that this, good. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she's kind of like a tricky witch, I guess. Like, oh, you want a kid? Here's like Thumbelina. Then the, the flower opens and there she is fully clothed speaking English. It was like all kind of weird. Um, and she names her Thumbelina. I, I texted you this as I was watching. I'm like, I would have just named her Mary or Lily right. out of the flower that she came out. She goes, Thumb, like, that's the first name that comes to mind. And that's the name that she goes. She goes, Thumbelina. And that, that girl got made fun of. She <laughs> like, put no thought into it. And everyone's like, wow, that's a great name. I'm like, no, it's not. I'd be really fun. Yeah, you could do maybe like um, a mystery science theater of this movie. It'd be pretty amusing. So that that's my that's my uh, my grief on <laughs> Thumbelina, a movie I was forced to watch maybe like only eight or nine times, but was never uh, was never a fan. Thank you for allowing me to watch a movie that I might never watch again. <laughs> it's a gift that keeps on giving. Uh, speaking of which, we can now move on to your pick 
for your least favorite childhood movie, and that is the 1985 Claymation movie. The best-loved characters of America's greatest storyteller come to life. It's the adventures of Mark Twain. So what, what was your experience as a kid with this movie? How often did you watch this interesting film? I actually had this on VHS, so... But I I was trying to think of, like, what is my least favorite? And, you know, you, you go through Rotten Tomatoes, and it's like, okay, I liked Balto. I liked We're Back. And I know they didn't get good reviews, but I'm like, I had fun. Of course, you know, you like the Disney, you like the Pixar, mm-hmm. you, uh, especially during the 90s. But, like, yeah, I liked the Don Bluth movies. Uh, most of them. Most of them. But I remember one that stuck out for me is going like oh i was at, at least at the time i was uh i didn't think it was made for kids and that mm-hmm. was the adventures of mark twain i don't even remember how we got it uh like i feel like we it's it's like something you only buy at like a mark twain museum <laughs> that's so funny like a mark twain like road stop <laughs> sort of like weird tourist attraction watching it now is so like I don't want to say it's bad. Like you, ha- I think it's incredibly. You have to be in like a Mark Twain mood to watch it. This movie is not for yeah. kids. No, I mean, like it's for adults to watch. On like, hey, honey, you want to just watch? I used to watch this as a kid. It's kind of like, oh, I read Mark Twain, and this is kind of like the bonus episode of your journey. Like, oh, I, I'm in a Mark Twain binge. I've been reading his books. Someone, this is definitely out of love and respect for Mark Twain, and I kind of appreciated it in that. I, I appreciated it a little bit, and the only thing I remember, once again, is the scary thing growing up, which uh, that's how we connected. That's how, like, people who watched this growing up or have seen this connected <laughs> in, like, college or something. The Mysterious Stranger. Yeah, we'll get into that sequence. I mean, I I kind of get what you're saying is this is, like, an homage to – Mark Twain's works, which from that angle, I can kind of appreciate the effort and the spirit of. And I could also see this maybe if you go to, again, like a Mark Twain exhibit, this is on like a monitor playing on loop as people like walk through, right? Like, oh, like Mark Twain, like another thing there. Um, But yeah, the big thing with this movie is the claymation style. This is mid 80s claymation. And to me, it was almost as if you took the claymation effects from Pee-wee's Adventure and just made a whole movie with that. (laughs) It's like, oh, like the freakiest parts of Pee-wee's Adventure, let's make that an entire movie. And this is what you get. I kept saying it's kind of cool and it's kind of ugly at the same time. I appreciate like some of the inventiveness, but for the most part, it is very off-putting the visually. Unfortunately, I mean, that's the effect you get. Um, And then uh, especially when things get kind of scary it's like really scary from the combination of what they're depicting and like what it looks like so in that spirit the because basically this movie is a series of vignettes of 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 his lesser known stories or at least least his like it's not i mean mark twain uh tom sawyer and huckleberry finn and becky thatcher are like the main like oh they're the there are are heroes in this but they're just going through like the mysterious stranger or the diary of adam and eve which i didn't really i never read and it kind of gave it a spin you know an updated 80s spin to it with humor that being said this is i don't i can't see any kid going like getting anything out of this even plus 10 and plus because this is a man grappling with like religion and death his own morality most of the most of the stories they chose to depict in this are like the more religious themed ones. So the diary of Adam and Eve, the mysterious stranger, which is like Satan, like he, and there are even like references to like heaven and hell throughout the in-between sequences. Like there's even, <laughs> yes, it's, yeah, I don't know if this is like an actual quote from Mark Twain or just like a Mark Twainish line that they came up, which was like, um, he's Mark Twain says the, um, the, uh, I think, uh, one of the characters, you look more disappointed than a Presbyterian in hell. <laughs> like, what? I think a Presbyterian would be a little more than disappointed to be in hell. But I, that was, like, the kind of thing. There's, like, constantly references to, like, the afterlife and to religion and stuff. I'm like, this is a little beyond. It's kind of like 
examining the mythology of Mark Twain, like, you know, the Halley's Comet, that whole, like, I was born on Halley's Comet, I'll die on Halley's Comet. Uh, and, yeah, this movie's not made for kids at all. This movie, even with the, the claymation, is not made for kids, and it's... Co- that whole mysterious, I, yeah, I don't know. The whole mysterious stranger sequence is how I was introduced to this movie because uh, a college friend of ours, who shall not be named, uh, would subject a lot of us to this scene by playing it on loop from because it was this movie used to be on Netflix. So when we'd all hang out together sometimes in college, uh, you know, this. I mean, I guess we all kind of like to torture each other in different ways. This one guy would put on the sequence from this movie totally out of context I'm like what what is the scene from this weird movie and the mysterious stranger is like a horrific scene in this movie in which they meet like satan and they like create a little world of little clay people that they then like kill and like the clay people are like why why are you killing us <laughs> what is this who came up with this for a kids movie yeah yeah it's Actually, that's the only sequence that, like, I think really kind of sticks out. Once again, the scary sequences in kids' movies, I think, stick out the most for kids. And watching it again, I'm like, A, I love the, that whole design of Satan. I, like, I think that, I, I wouldn't be surprised if there's fan art of it. Right. Again, it's inventive. I appreciate that. But the whole thing of, like... It gets, like, way too existential, the whole thing. It's of- philosophy, it's religion, it's, like, you know, you know, there's, like, hey, Satan is just, like, I want to create life, but you humans are so, like, little to me. Like, why do you humans do this stuff? And the lines that- are too abstract, too. Like, he has some lines, like, I cannot be good or bad because I don't even know what that even means. Like, what? <laughs> like, what kind of line is that for a kid's movie? So, at the end of the day, it's just, like, I, I, I appreciate it. I won't say it's a <laughs> it's a good movie, but I appreciate I appreciated it a little more. And but the only reason one should watch this is if they're writing a Mark Twain essay or they're in a Mark Twain mood. It's kind of like yeah, it's kind of like that bonus episode at the end of the journey. You'll if you read the Mysterious Stranger or the Diary of uh, Adam and Eve or that Frog short story, I think you might get a lot out of it. That Adam and Eve, that Adam and Eve stuff, that was like the wacky sitcom of Adam and Eve. <laughs> like, again, it was like the other way around. As dark as the Mysterious Stranger was, the Adam and Eve stuff was like really like kooky. Like, it, the, totally, this movie was all over the place. And then they eat now the it, apple, and then it goes horror. Like, even that was like kind of played down though in a humorous way. Uh, and it's kind of funny too because my big issue with Dumbelina was how overly cutesy it was. And then this is, like, the other extreme. It's, like, way too dark. And, like, dark doesn't mean good for a kid's movie. There has to be, like, purpose to it and reason to it and a level to it. And this goes – that takes it, like, way too far the other way with, again, a sequence like The Mysterious Stranger. Um, you know, if you're going to do dark in a kid's movie, you, there's, like, a level to it. And this is, like, going way beyond that. Uh, yeah, it's it's not made for kids, and that's why it's probably my least – it was my least favorite childhood movie growing up. It's like, oh, I watched it, and I think I kept it in the VHS thing, and I quickly gave it away at a yard sale. I'm like, I'm not getting anything out of this. But the Mysterious Stranger bit always stuck with me just because of the – yeah, once again, I wouldn't be surprised if there's fan art. Like, I, I think that's so creative. So, yeah, those, those are the movies that plagued us <laughs> when we were kids. Okay, so we've discussed our least favorite childhood movies, gotten those out of the way forever to be repressed for another time. And uh, we are now going to discuss our favorite childhood movies, the ones that brought us joy the most. Um, And so uh, we'll start with my pick for my favorite childhood movie, and that would be the 1994 movie. Jim Carrey is the mask. This has got to be a new breed. Oh. Rated PG-13. I uh, watched this movie so many times as a kid, and it got to the point where I still even remember the pre-movie VHS commercials and trailers. That's how much we I watched this VHS. Basically, this movie has a huge influence on my personality now. I feel like a lot of the, the this movie basically made me want to be funny, uh, and I was like obsessed with Jim Carrey as a kid. He was like my favorite actor for the longest time, 
Um, so, uh, yeah, I would reenact scenes as a kid from The Mask, and, uh, you know, people get a kick out of that, I guess, or maybe they'd be annoyed. I don't know. But <laughs> I do it now. Do it now. <laughs> nah, that's okay. Looking back on this movie as an adult, you know, I don't think it's like a great movie. I think it's a pretty good movie that still works in a lot of different regards. Um, I still think it's really funny. Maybe not as funny as when I was a kid, but I still think it's pretty funny. I think actually it's a solid story. I think Jim Carrey is great both as the mask and as the Stanley Ipkiss character. I actually really relate to the arc of this character who goes from like the more meek, nice guy pushover to the guy who like learns to stand up for himself. I feel like that really resonates. Um, and uh, I think the effects still look pretty good, especially for like 1994. Um, funny enough too, 1994, the year my favorite and least favorite childhood movies were released. Big year here on the podcast. I think we've actually talked about 1994 in other regards being a big year for movies that we care about but anyways um yeah so many things about this movie i feel like also go under the radar that should be appreciated more i feel like the music like the the score of this movie is like very distinct and recognizable if you hear like music from the mask you automatically recognize it from this movie um and yeah i just like yeah it's not a movie i go back to all the time but whenever i do i do kind of like feel like I'm going back in time a bit to that, you know, when I was a kid in the 90s and I'd, I'd watched the crap out of this. So, um, yeah, it was it was an enjoyable experience having to go back and uh, experience that again. So uh, what, what do you think, Keith? Like, what was your opinions on The Mask? If it's anything but positive, then we're going to have to reevaluate our partnership on this podcast. We'll have to reevaluate that another day. I really enjoy this movie and I really... Uh... I really enjoy just watching it every time I kind of find a reason to watch it. I, I put it on randomly. I don't know if I said this on the podcast when on our Sonic episode, but I randomly put on during one of my quarantine watches, The Mask, uh, and I, I get to see, like, A, this movie would not have... I can't see this movie working with anyone else. Maybe Robin Williams, but no, I can't. I think Jim Carrey played this was born for this role. He was, yeah, and it he's trickled so down into all the other aspects of the movie. That it, while we've seen these tropes before, with like you know the other characters, like you know the bad guy, and it it kind of it kind of works solely because Jim Carrey is giving a hundred and ten percent, and the I think this movie falls into the category of like. It kind of has that Men in Black feel to it, where and uh, both are made from like this very like cult, obscure uh, comic. comic that doesn't has nothing to do with the source material except maybe the like the 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 log line of it, and because of the cast of like Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones, it really works. It's so it, it makes me like love a movie, like love movies, like it just like. The possibilities of like what can inspire a movie and where you can take it from its original source material. Yeah, because like the mask comic book I read into is very dark. It's very violent, and it's almost like borderline horror in some regards. Kills. He's a killer. Yeah, he like instead of a Looney Tune. Instead of yeah, his kind of revenge in the comic is like through guns and blood, and in this one. It's like, yeah, more cartoony. And, you know, I think the Looney Tunes thing is, like, very well established even in the opening. Obviously, he's not just, like, watching Looney Tunes, but he even has, like, the Tasmanian Devil pillow, which is, like, perfect because that's he does the Tasmanian Devil tornado thing when he's, like, in the mask, um, you know, wearing the mask. Which also, I never really put too much thought into it, but I was, like, really doing like, a deep thought of, like, this mask concept and what even the idea is because you put on this mask which apparently is inhabited by loki they hint at by it's loki like, or something like it's very vague it's like the powers they, of until loki. loki started becoming like a part of our pop culture i'm like oh loki <laughs> yeah okay duh they were saying the mask was like the missing loki alter ego from the loki show but um yeah he puts on the mask and i feel like it's unclear if it's like if the mask 
possesses the wearer or how much control a wearer of the mask has depending on the personality i think as he goes along the movie the stanley apex character gets more and more control over his powers of the mask we're almost like initially the first time or two he's almost like he's doing things he would never even think to do like he robs a bank like what, just like on a whim i thought he robs it a bank. you're like id like it, it does that's a like good that, way to put like it. that that inner mo- like he is like he the guy uh Stanley Itkiss watches, um, you know, cartoons. He he has uh, so he in his innermost core he is a a cartoon. He really kind of I feel like I was watching a live action Looney Tune at times, and and, yeah. and that's not a that's far from an insult, and that's why when uh, uh, Zed from Pulp Fiction put on mm-hmm. the mask, he brought out like this demon man right which i think is so interesting that you know when stanley ipkiss puts on the mask it completely covers his head but when the villain dorian tyrell puts on the mask he still has his hair for some reason that's not his real hair i know but i I learned actually this one fun fact is jim carrey has such like a rubber face that he was able to save the special effects artists some money because when he takes off the mask like what his face is doing Mm. they were able to like they didn't need to add any more CGI yeah. or like those special effects to his face, and I'm like, ah, that makes me like appreciate this like Jim Carrey in this movie more because I really think a when we talked about Jim Carrey having the best year, I I still think ever for a comedic actor, uh, yeah, three movies in one Ace year, Ventura, all and I remember watching the cartoon, the Mask cartoon, growing up. I it was alright, yeah, I didn't mind. It, it. it was part of I think Fox, but it was uh, I actually re listened to the. Uh, the theme song from that it brought back some nostalgia for me but Funny yeah enough too the mask cartoon had a crossover with the ace ventura cartoon i know one I, episode. <laughs> jim carrey like kind of Carrey... dominated my 90s uh but yeah no it i i would say it's a a good night good movie out of 1994 like i really think yeah that was a solid hit people liked it fine and you know maybe i just happen to like be one of the people who love it Again, like critically, I understand it's just like a good, it's a pretty good movie, but I just, I love it. Whereas most people were like, yeah, it was good. And most people had a good time at the theater with it, but it always hold a place in my heart. And, you know, when I go back to it too, it's like one of those movies where the you've watched it so much, you really start to think about things that people really, it was like never intended to put that much thought into. Like watching it again this time in that whole sequence in the Coco Bongo Club when he's dancing with Cameron Diaz and stuff, and everyone's really into it, like, wow, what a great dance sequence. And I'm thinking, is no one confused why this guy has a green head? <laughs> like, no, everyone's just like, wow, what a great dancer. And this guy has, like, a green face. No, no one's, like, questioning. When you have a zoot suit as great as that, why question things? But the music the music is so well, and the Cuban the music sequences, is fantastic. I'm, la- I'm laughing during this movie. Like, this movie still makes mm-hmm. me laugh. Oh, yeah, I think there's, like, little things, too, that really get me every time. Again, like, um, the one line uh, when he's, like, pretending to die and he's, like, quoting all these movies. I mean, that has a huge – that's, like, that's all, like, my kind of humor. You know, tell Scarlet I do give a damn. You know, tell tell Annie M to let old Yeller out. (laughs) That's that's amazing. It wasn't me. It was the one-armed man. I love love all that kind of stuff. And that's all Jim Carrey. Like, I really – can't see this in yeah. a script. I really can't picture this in a script without like mm-hmm. I, they they let Jim Carrey go and. Mm-hmm. I think also like the director does a really good touch to um, kind of like balancing all these different tones. Like it is really funny, but the movie also has elements of obviously fantasy because like this mask character. I mean, like the mask powers are like anything. It's like the genie from Aladdin. You can conjure things out of nowhere. You're invincible. You can do whatever you want. You can like distort reality. You can control people. It's like almost it's like infinite powers, really. Um, and so there's like the fantasy element. I also do you get a sense that this movie has a little bit of like a noir kind of going on a little bit. Edge because, City, like, I believe. It. Yeah, it has that kind of like you know back alley shadow, right? Cameron Diaz is introduced in, like, a very femme fatale kind of way. Even, like, there's a lot of art deco in the production designs. Even, like, the Coco Bongo 
is like the kind of club that would exist in like the 40s in a noir kind of place. I'm like, would this be a popular club in the 90s? I don't know. But I guess given like the sort of style and the world of Edge City living in, I buy it. It's noir in the same way like the Tim Bur- how Tim Burton made Batman noir. Like how right. that it's Gotham City, influenced. his Gotham City is very noir. It's like that. Kind of, I don't even like – it's like neo-neo-noir or neo-retro-noir yeah. or something like that. Yeah, it's like a sub 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 genre with that hint of fantasy, which you really. I miss movies like this. Mm-hmm. I really do miss yeah. movies like this that where there is kind of a chance that it could fail, but it really kind of I don't know. It's still like you know they they tried to. It's still popular. Like you know, whenever you think of Jim Carrey, it's one of his top performances, outside of like Eternal just... Sunshine and. Truman Show. Oh, right. Well, yeah, I mean, those are his, like, um, big, like, dramatic showcases. And for this, I feel like they just gave themselves total creative reign. Because, again, the masked powers are so, like, undefined in a good way that it could be anything you want it to be. And, again, like, the audience doesn't question it. As a kid, I never questioned it. Like, well, you know, why doesn't someone explain how the mask works? Like, I don't need someone to explain how it works it just it's a mask you put it on you can do whatever you want and everyone just went with it and they kind of the days... explain it with ben stein and you're kind of like that's it's as droll oh, as like his voices that's like a one hokey thing though like right before he puts on the mask he comes home with this mask he puts on the tv and it's like ben stein talking about masks it's like one of those cliches we put on the tv with all of us it's like whatever you put on the TV is what just happens to be immediately relevant to your life as a movie character. Also, uh, still to this day, the best dog actor I've seen in a movie. Like I, I still think, that think that's Milo. That Milo the dog is like the hero of the movie. He's like he's like the unsung hero. Obviously, Jim Carrey is like really like the human hero, but Milo is such a great dog movie dog. I mean, this this dog, first of all, when he wears the mask, I think that's hilarious. I think that's done really well and smart to do. It's like, why don't we put the mask on the dog and, like, work with that? That's a great idea. And even him saving the day, running up the wall and grabbing the keys and all that kind of stuff, um, I totally buy it. And, like, even the dog had, like, and I know it's directing, but the facial expressions, like, the reaction shots, I I just thought what the – I still think it's the best, like, dog actor I've seen on film. Yeah, you know, when people go back and they think of dogs in movies, they think of, like, obviously, like, Marley and Me or something like that. But I think people need to remember Milo from The Mask more often because this dog, this you, the day would not have been won in this movie without this Milo Basically. character. Uh, he's, he's, like, real, and, you know, he has a whole personality, too. This, this a very, very uh, identifiable personality. So, um yeah, you know what? Maybe it's more than just a pretty good movie. Maybe it's a really good movie. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not sure if I'm ready to say it's a great movie, uh, looking back. But I still now that more I think about, it, I think it's really good. If I'd give it a percentage, I'd probably give it maybe like an eighty-three percent, something in the, like a, the lower eighties. Out of ten, I'd give it like a seven, seven point five, but I will, mm. I would allow someone to give it an eight. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think I think it's in that realm. Um, okay, so that's our our love letter to the mask. Okay. Uh, and now we can go into uh, your pick for uh, your favorite childhood movie, and that would be the classic '80s, also noir influenced. Who framed Roger Rabbit? He's here. A Steven Spielberg presentation, a Robert Zemeckis film, rated PG. I mean, this movie. Is amazing. <laughs> this this is definitely an amazing movie for many many reasons. Technically, you know the story, everything about this movie um, is just like mind blowing. And um, yeah, what what was your history though as a kid watching? This? Um, back in the days of Saturday morning cartoons, like actually like waking up and watching uh, the WB back then. Mm-hmm. Uh, after the WB, I think it would end at like twelve. Or one, and then after that would come on Soul Train, which is not a cartoon. It starts with a cartoon, and I I'm speak I'm really speaking to that inner kid in all of us. It starts with a cartoon, and then it starts with dancing to disco for an hour, and then WB would air Saturday, um, e- uh, Saturday afternoon matinee, where they would do Romancing the Stone, Never Ending Story. Though, like, PG... Classics. PG movies from the 80s. Mm-hmm. 
and early 90s. And I remember just one day you get like, you know, it's Roger Rabbit starts off with a cartoon like, oh, my God, another cartoon. And I, didn't, I grew up uh, without cable. I grew up without cable till like I was like 11, 12. So I really kind of had the, the main like two, four, five, seven, nine, and 11. That's really kind of, and 13. That's really kind of what I grew up with for the 90s, for a good part of my childhood. So I really was limited on TV. And I, at least as like the young kid in me, I enjoyed what young kids would enjoy cartoons and humans it, it it works for kids it works for adults i'm gonna come around and say it, it is a perfect movie and it's only perfect and it, it like it took the the premise and executed so well the craftsman the filmmaking craftsmanship the behind the scenes you like what robert zemeckis and his team did was utterly painstaking work painstaking painstakingly work. but utterly amazing Ooh, totally worth it bob hoskins goes all in Christopher Lloyd goes all out. Uh, it's so, and it's and and it it ages like fine wine. In that, like, the more movies you watch and the more films you appreciate, this is uh, this honors the um, the noir, like not even neo noir, the noir actual uh, noir genre so well that it kind of is now and to me it's still like it's in my top 10 it's in my top 10 personally favorite movies but it, it should be in like a top 10 great noir movies just because it does yeah, something you know, so different it is like doing a great job of that whole hollywood era of the late 40s this golden era of animation this golden era of film and you know when those like uh humphrey bogart movies were like at their prime and uh you know, it's interesting, too, because it's doing what, like, our favorite kind of movies do, which is make us ask ourselves, how did they do that? Uh, it's, like, scene after scene, especially that uh, first scene with Jessica Rabbit when she's doing her performance, and there's so much interaction with the live-action characters. And it's all done with practical effects, then mixed in with the animation you know like we talk about i mean there's a lot of movies now that have the mix of live action and animation but you know we when you talk about like space jam for example that a lot of that's just done with green screen and it's like kind of like the easy way this like roger rabbit this is like the way it should be done to really blur the line between animation and live action where you really like for a second can get lost and believe that these two different dimensional characters are existing in the same frame and they acknowledge it and like like you can't kill a tune except with dip like it 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 it, it conceptually rules. it's solid it creates the rules and really kind of stays within it but uh if you really want like i'm sure this i, I watched it on youtube but like the craftsmanship of the when the weasels go into eddie's apartment and you know, when he has Roger in the dishwasher, it's like a pipe coming up, spitting out water, and he's, like, pushing it down. Or when Christopher Lloyd is doing shave and a haircut, it it's kind of... I, I love this movie so much. And one memory that always sticks out with me is, like, when I discovered this movie, I think I, I was doing, like... Both my parents worked, so I did, like, after-school care. And every once in a while, someone would bring in a movie. And I was so excited. I remember renting this from Blockbuster going, I would love to show Who Framed Roger Rabbit. I watched this. I must have been in third grade. I think that's probably when this all. And, how, you know, the movie starts the cartoon. You know, everyone's gathered around. And oh, and then uh, Baby goes like, what the hell is going What Damn it, Roger. And all of a sudden, like, the parents, the, the, the people in charge of the after-school care go like, oh, this movie might not be really fit for kids i'm like no but it's really good and i remember i didn't get like in trouble trouble but i was like we can't like we have to stop right, this like right there and i was so disheartened but that that always kind of sticks out for me but because that's where that's where like the movie really you understand like the essence of the movie when it's like you know damn it roger cut 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 and that's that's like, i mean it's a perfect intro and it also gives you a good sense of how there's things for both kids and adults in this because yeah, you get, like, the cartoons that kids love, but then, you know, it's, like, something unexpected that adults would like, uh, the, like, the behind well, the, the scenes. Well, the writing on it is so clever. Like, it's like, do you know anything about show business? It's the only business I know. Like, it's very it, – it touches that thing in all 
all of us, whether it's like even what, without even without the visual technical achievements of this movie, it is like very like it's a great script. It, the act like the live action actors, like you said, Bob Hoskins, they're all like great and living in this world. Um, and like again, like even without that amazing magical element of the live action animation mix, you'd still have like a very like fascinating uh, you know and involving story. Well, apparently they tried it before. I've never seen this movie, but they tried to do something before, like within the same year-ish with Brad Pitt, a young Brad Pitt, and it's the idea of humans and cartoons mixing it together, and I think it's that's a terrible movie. Mm. Like that's Yeah, I think a, I've heard of something like I've, that, like I've where he's like on drugs, the, basically. Yes, yeah, so it's, it's kind of more R-rated or PG-13, but I've seen the poster or VHS tape of the cover of it and yeah i'm aware of like i'm that aware movie. of it and i kind of i don't want to watch like a bad movie unless i'm doing this for a podcast uh right but i it's like i want more movies like this <laughs> i want like but something that just fills the heart of like both the entertainment side and the film craftsmanship uh craftsmanship side that just <laughs> crapmanship crapmanship. Uh, uh that's a great last name but uh just uh, something that fills both just to create an entertaining movie that I think that only gets better over time. Right. And we always say time is the, the best measure, the best measuring stick uh, for success in films. And it still looks amazing all these years later. I also think it's interesting too, that you know, Robert Zemeckis has made, has made like a bunch of iconic movies specifically from like the mid eighties to like the late nineties. But, um, I feel like most people think of Robert Zemeckis, they do think of either Forrest Gump or they think of Back to the Future. And I, for some reason, I feel like this movie gets like a little lost in his, I mean, really accomplished filmography. But um, yeah, as much as I love Back to the Future, and you know, I like Forrest Gump okay, but I feel like this movie should stand out more and be more of like a landmark movie than it is. I feel like it doesn't get that landmark as much of a landmark status as it deserves. I just checked uh I'm and granted this is not a measure of excellency, but I'm shocked and I don't think it's ever been on IMDb's top 250 movies. I do agree with you that there is like you kind of people are kind of remembered that they like, "Oh my god, yeah, that's an amazing movie," but it's never on any like you have to remind people. Top ten lists, but uh, I don't know. It's not like it's like oh, like you know, people people really, you know, people always remember again Back to the Future or Forrest Gump, uh, but do they like go? You know, they have to be reminded of Who Framed Roger Rabbit a lot, which I which I think is too bad. I mean, also think about the fact that you have like Looney Tune and Disney cartoon characters in the same frame as well that like the the two big studios came together and agreed like they I don't know like how maybe from reading the script or whatever I want to like maybe learn more of the history behind how they brokered that deal that's like it's worth like bringing our flagship characters together on screen for what is essentially I think like a great American film and great American moments in film so like Bugs Bunny and Mickey Mouse together in the same frame. Amazing. That's a great shot, too, um, of him falling. And yeah, I, the, I actually did know unexpected. a bit of the history. Uh, okay. they, they only agreed to it if they could have the... I believe it's the same amount of words. Not lines, mm. but I believe, I believe that like okay. Mickey and Bugs have to have the same amount of li- uh, words on screen. Okay, that makes sense. You can kind of tell a little bit they are very economical with what they are saying. And then even too like the earlier in the film, the piano battle between the two famous ducks, <laughs> Donald and Daffy, really great stuff. I mean, the Mickey Mouse Bugs Bunny stuff. Also, I think that particular scene happens very almost unexpected. You almost like I feel like people go into the movie maybe if that's it's for like, us. Yeah, if it's like what year was this movie? Like nineteen eighty-eight or eighty-nine? Eighty, yeah, eighty-eight, eighty-nine. I want to say eighty-nine. People go into this movie and they're like, I don't know if this was in the promotional materials, that particular scene with those two iconic characters, but they go into it thinking like, oh, like we, we know we're getting to, hopefully we'll see either Bugs or Mickey. But then you get so involved in the story that you 
forget to look out for that. And then this happens maybe like with only 15 minutes left in the movie and they finally come and it's like so unexpected. It's like, oh my gosh, there they are. Yeah, as a kid, it blew my mind and it's still, it's still like magical and to see as an adult. And the attention to detail as an adult, like, uh, and I've noticed this before, but I really kind of noticed this on this rewatch is like in the beginning when you're kind of getting a quick exposition shot of Eddie and his brother, it's really just kind of, camera over the newspapers and over the picture and it's just like uh the valiant brothers saw they you know they rescued the nephews huey dewey and louis save they they got goofy off of like he's not a communist they they thought he, i'm like <laughs> yeah that, i'm like oh my god the wor- this stuff. is the world in 1947 this is a great la noir uh so clever movie. the way and, they're able to like bring these cartoon characters into like real world like societal issues at the time um it's a way that, into my heart this movie like, that's really uh that's really clever um yeah man so uh that i have to say too this is not a movie that i initially watched uh as a kid until i was a little older i don't think i really caught it until maybe it was like 11 or 12 unfortunately but i think i would have loved it as a kid and, you know going back to to what you said about you know, panning and seeing like the different news articles and stuff. I mean, that was really Zemeckis' bread and brother, bread and brother, bread and butter was like visual storytelling through like different set pieces. Because he even does that too in the beginning of Back to the Future with different like news articles to like set up the 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 um, you know, instead of verbal exposition, you get more visual exposition, which I kind of prefer. It's like less tedious. Yeah, maybe you could say it's a little cliche, like a newspaper article that happens to be about this person's life. But I rather have that than someone just saying, like, I think it's fun. You know, Don't you remember your whole life, which will now tell the whole audience? The fact that they saved Goofy from being a con, like they thought he was like he was blacklisted, and then he. <laughs> uh. That was no, the big it, thing. The attention to detail in this movie is A+. Plus. It is a perfect movie, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree. I agree. It is it is up there. And like I said, it should be like more of a milestone um, in people's minds than it's given credit for. Because like, I don't even know if it's like on the AFI Top 100 list, because it, it should be. I'm not really sure like where it stands in all those lists. They like, need to update lists. that thing. Too many good movies. I know. That they, need, like, they need to update. I mean, also, like, why even... You know, I have a suggestion, too, for the AFI Top 100. Don't even, like, rank them. Just do, like, Top 100 movies in no particular order, maybe in alphabetical order. Because, like, to even rank, like, okay, how do we decide if this movie should be top, like, number 56 or number 57? Like, who cares? Just put, like, not even 100. Top 500 movies. Like, there's too many movies. Like, 100 is, like, not enough Let's space do it. for Let's, all the great movies. We don't even have to write AFI. We'll just call it uh, JJ and Keith's new updated AFI list of what deserves to be on there they all everyone all these websites do it anyway so let's <laughs> there is uh i mean there is like a very popular podcast now uh unspooled which i do listen to that tackles like you know the what they think the top 100 should be but i even say like make it bigger than 100 make it like 500 a thousand i don't know whatever whatever it is um okay man so this has been great revisiting these movies that we liked and maybe like getting our gripes about the childhood movies that we didn't like but uh it was it was a fun revisit nonetheless yes yes and uh i can't wait to start a new season with you yeah we have a lot of really uh great movies i can't wait to discuss and to you know figure out where we stand on the divide uh, so that's coming coming this fall to a platform on your phone so keep an eye out for that we should be releasing episodes um towards the end of september and we'll keep you guys updated on our social media uh but until then uh thanks a lot guys for listening and uh you'll hear from us soon